Welcome to the Semper Reformato podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. So we're going back to Saul's dramatic conversion to Christianity tonight. An extraordinary event. And we're going to make three very simple and basic points. And the first is that it's unlikely that your conversion or mine will be similar to Saul's. For we all have different circumstances and different conversion stories. The second point is that our conversion will be very similar to Saul's. And the third point, if we get time before we finish, I'd like to mention something called the ordinary means of grace. Those God-ordained methods through which in our day he brings repentant sinners to salvation in Christ. So, very simply, there are ways in which your conversion will not be like Saul's. There's a common expression, you've heard it said, a Damascus Road conversion, or a Damascene conversion. It refers to somebody who has been suddenly and dramatically changed in their opinions so that they begin to believe or practice the opposite of what they had previously believed or practiced. A Christian once asked another believer, tell me, brother, have you walked the Damascus Road? (laughs) Uh, And I think if you have walked the Damascus Road, you'll have a pretty bad experience. Have you had a conversion experience exactly like that of Paul? Now, I very much doubt it. And for your sake, I actually hope that you haven't. Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus was Paul's conversion. It wasn't a pattern for you or me. It was a one-off, unique event. Remember that Acts is a history book. It's not the directory for public worship. It's not a systematic theology. We need to remember that all the time when we are reading Acts that we are reading history. These pages are referring to historical events in the life of the first believers, written by Luke, a medical practitioner, uh, a historian, written at a time when the Bible, the canon of Scripture, had not yet been finally and fully given. So you need a very simple, basic understanding of how to interpret the Bible. Simple biblical hermeneutics teaching us that the book of Acts is not intended to be a basis of doctrine. And you need to remember also that Paul was an apostle. And you're not an apostle. And neither am I. And there are no genuine apostles in the church today, just pretenders, frauds. Paul was the very last of the apostles, the one who met the living, risen Christ. Paul himself explains this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 6. 
that after he was that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. And then he says he was seen by James, by the apostles, last of all seen by me also as one born out of due time, for I am the least of the apostles. Paul tells us that he is actually the last person to see Jesus, the last of the band of apostles. So you won't have a conversion exactly like Saul's. You won't meet the physical, literal Jesus along a road. And he won't speak to you. And you won't see a blinding light from heaven. Your conversion, hopefully and thankfully, would be a lot less quieter, a lot less open, a lot less physically dramatic. I hope that when you're converted, you won't be knocked down to the ground. A lot less noticeable. And sometimes, you know, if you've been brought up in a Christian home and you've been taught the gospel and you've gone to church and Sunday school and you've been taught the way of salvation at your parents' knees, um, your conversion will still be there, but the outward appearance may be very little affected at all, just every bit as effective. So your conversion, first of all, is not going to be exactly the same as Saul of Tarsus. And yet there are ways in which your conversion will be exactly like Saul of Tarsus. In the passage that we read, um, Saul said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Saul met Christ. And there are some elements of Saul's conversion that are common to every conversion. One of the very first things that the rebel Saul of Tarsus needs to learn is about who Jesus is, about the person of Christ, about the work of God in and through his Son, about the Holy Spirit. He needs to know with whom he is dealing when he persecutes the church. He needs to learn that Jesus, against whom all his hatred is directed, is God himself. So on the Damascus road, Saul learned some lessons. I think the first lesson that we want to look at is in chapter 9 and verse 3. You'll see here that as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. A light. He learned, firstly, that God has a blinding light. He learned about the holiness of God. In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5, there is a message that God has given directly to the Apostle John, a message that he was declaring to the Christians. And the message is that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God is light. The very first thing that Saul is struck with is a blinding light. A description of God's physical presence is that he dwells in unapproachable light. 
Light's a description of the way God reveals himself to mankind. For without light we could never see. And God brings his marvellous light to our sin-blinded souls. Light is a description of God's moral perfection. God's holiness. Most people think that's probably what John meant in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5. For God has no darkness within him whatsoever. There's not one tiny scintilla of darkness, not anywhere, not even a dot of it. No sin, no darkness. God is light, he is holy, he is morally pure. He is so pure that we could never hope to come anywhere near him in our sins. His nature and his character affects the relationship that as human beings we have with him. Our sin affects our fellowship with such an impeccably holy God. So when God appears on the road to Damascus to Saul, what first he sees is a blinding light so bright that a sinner cannot even look at him. He is blinded by the light. So he's learned about God as holy. The second lesson he's going to learn is of God's love for his church. He learns about God's love. Listen to the voice um, as we read about it here. Next chapter 9. And... Um, Verse 4, it says, He fell to the earth, and he heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? You know, Jesus loves the church so much that he gave his own life for his church. He describes his church as his bride. One day there's going to be a great marriage supper when the church will be reunited with the Lord. Paul talks about the church as being the body of Christ. So is it any wonder that when Saul is coming along the road and he sees this blinding light and the voice speaks to him, it says, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It doesn't say, why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting the Christians? Why did you persecute Stephen? Why did you persecute the people in Jerusalem? It says, why are you persecuting me? Because Christ dwells in his church and they dwell in him. It is the body of Christ. He feels our pain and he feels our sorrows and he loves his church so much that he gave his life for them. Preaching to the Hebrew church, Paul proclaimed uh, that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we might find mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus knows the road you travel. 
every mile. Every trouble, every trial, every disappointment, every sorrow, every barb, every lash of the whip on Paul's back, every saint of God that is persecuted for his faith. He loves them. And when they persecute the Christian, they persecute the Saviour. Why persecutest thou me? He loves his church. So he learned something about the light of God and the love of God. And the next thing he's going to learn is about the Lordship of Christ. Verse 6. What wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou shalt do. That was a bit of a come down for Saul, wasn't it? If you've been following the life of Saul up until this point, up until now he's been in charge of everything. Saul's a man who makes his own decisions. Saul's an independent thinker. Saul's got power. He's in control. He has his own private police force along the road with him. And every one of those men is under instruction from the council to do his bidding, to execute the warrant for the arrest of Christians and to haul them back to Jerusalem, probably a sizable enough band of men. And Saul is the man in charge. Saul runs his own life. Saul is his own boss. Saul has his own destiny in his hands. Except that he hasn't. And he's just found that out. You see, like all of us, for Saul, power and autonomy are illusionary aren't they? It'll be swept away one day. All of it, all the power that this earth gives you, all the sense of self-control. And people will say to you now, be your own man, live your own dream, follow your own heart, do your own thing. Don't care what anybody says to you. You're in charge of your life. Life is what you make it. Well, listen, one day that life will be taken from you. Everything. And now Saul is the man awaiting orders. The man who marched into the Sanhedrin and got his own way. The man who had the warrant to do what he wanted to do. You go, Saul. You go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. There is a greater authority than my heart. There is a greater authority than my purposes. There is a greater authority than my plans. There is a greater authority than my autonomy. 
There is an authority that is far greater than me. And like everyone else who will come to Christ, like Saul of old, I must learn to submit to God's greater authority, to bow the knee before the Lordship of Christ and say, What wilt thou have me do? He's learning to surrender. He must bow the knee. It's a lesson that we need to learn today. That there will be a day if we do not come now as sinners and bow the knee to Jesus and surrender to him in this life. Then one day and a day to come at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow every tongue confess that he is Lord. So he learned some important lessons. He learned about the holiness of God. He learned that God loves his church. He learned about the Lordship of Christ. And he experienced the new birth. There's something else that we learn that's interesting in in Saul's conversion. And we see it in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 15 to 16. And we learn there that on that Damascus road that day, God not only revealed himself to Paul, but he also revealed himself in Paul. He says so in Galatians. Just look at it for a moment. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 15. When it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, we noticed that part last week, to reveal his son in me. Now, I have to admit that years ago when I looked at that first, many years ago, when I looked at that first and read that first, and I was trying to write out a wee sermon on it, and I'm thinking, why does Paul not say he revealed his son to me? Because he did, didn't he? He revealed his son to him along the, along the road to Damascus. And of course, before he could reveal his son in him, he had to reveal his son to him. But that was as far as I got. But you know, conversion experience... It's not just something that's objective. It was objective. The soldiers traveling with him heard the voice. They heard the sound of a voice, even if we're taught in Acts chapter 22 and verse 9 that they didn't know what was being said. But there was something subjective going on as well. At conversion, while our thoughts are preoccupied with the reality of our deep sinfulness, While we are thinking and meditating and being drawn to the reality, the historical reality of Christ's atoning death for sin, that's an historical work. There is also an internal work going on within us. The Holy Spirit inclines our hearts towards God. The Holy Spirit regenerates our dead spirit within us. The Holy Spirit makes us, to quote the Confessions, heartily willing to turn from our sins and trust Christ. God reveals himself to us objectively and subjectively. He reveals himself in us at conversion. Paul was right in Galatians. 
There's a double work going on here. While the Lord is revealing himself to Saul, the Holy Spirit is at work, revealing the Lord in Saul. It's called regeneration. It's called the new birth. Now, all of those aspects of Saul's conversion are common to every believer. In a sense, we must all see the light. In a sense, we must all be brought to an understanding of our need for a saviour, of the holiness of the God we must face in eternity. Jesus described our conversion as passing from darkness unto light. We will discover the love of God for sinners whom he is drawing into his church who are part of his elect people. And we will eventually, sooner or later, with the help of the Holy Spirit, willingly bow the knee to God and admit the Lordship of Christ over our lives. And somewhere as that is happening, we will experience the new birth as the Holy Spirit within us regenerates us. Yes, there's a lot of Saul's conversion that won't apply to you and I. But there's an awful lot that will. So finally, we're already out of time. But I do want to ask the question, how does God convert sinners these days? Of course, in Saul's example, it says here in verse 4 that he fell to the ground. Well, I don't think that's what's going to happen. God doesn't knock sinners down in normal practice. He uses something called the ordinary means of grace. Now, what's that? Paul's unique conversion had a number of very physical um, manifestations that, that are not common. God awakened Saul by forcibly knocking him over, by arresting him on his wicked path. But that's not how God ordinarily operates. What are the ordinary means of grace? The Reformed churches refer to the ordinary means of grace as the word preached primarily, but also read. And the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And you can see it here in in Saul's conversion. You can see those things. He heard God's voice. It tells us he heard a voice saying to him. Now God speaks to us in conversion. How does he do that? In former days, God spoke through the prophets to the apostles. He revealed himself in miracles and signs and wonders, invisible manifestations of his risen person. To us, living in the days when the scriptures are complete, when the biblical revelation is finally done for us and has been presented to us, God has finally spoken to us in his written word. Now, if you want to hear God speaking to you tonight, here's what you have to do. Here's the key to hearing the voice of God. Write this down. Are you ready? Read your Bible. And do you see if you want to hear God speaking out loud, audibly? Read your Bible out loud. God speaks to Christians today 
through his word. And he speaks through the sacraments, pointers to Christ. The men who were travelling with him stood speechless, the scripture says, hearing their voice but seeing no one. Now we can't see Jesus today. Any more than could the men who were travelling with Saul. They couldn't see Christ. Saul could see him, but the men who were travelling with him couldn't see him. We come to worship him, but we can't see him with our eyes. So God has put into the church sacraments to point us to Christ. They are means of grace in that they point us directly to Jesus. How do they do that? Well, the Reformers and the Confessions talk about baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism points us to Jesus. When we witness baptism, what do we see? A physical example of the washing of sin. How God has in Christ washed away all of our sins in the atoning blood of Jesus. When we come around the Lord's table, once again, we don't see Jesus there. We don't expect the bread and the wine to be miraculously transubstantiated into some kind of body and blood. But what we do see is pointers that point us to the real thing. Signs and seals of God's covenant that point us to Christ and remind us that he shed his blood for sinners on the cross. That his body was broken for us. That he was wounded for me. That without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And those means, those ordinary means of grace, are applied to our hearts by the work of the Holy Spirit. For in the preaching of the word and the rightful administration of the sacraments, the Holy Spirit takes these common, ordinary things and applies them to the heart and the life of the sinner. That's what makes preaching different from a lecture, because the Holy Spirit's at work. That's what makes baptism different from just having a good wash or having a good bath, if you're that way inclined. Or what makes... Uh, communion more profitable than a good meal it's because the Holy Spirit is applying the means of grace and that brought Saul to a state of deep humility look at him now marching out of Jerusalem with his band of soldiers and now at the end of our passage Chapter 8, for chapter 9 and verse 8, it says they led him by the hand. Oh boy, what a come down. He's been humbled, hasn't he? Common to all. When we come to Jesus, we come in humility. For human pride has no place at the cross. We come with nothing. We come on bended knee. We come confessing our sins. So what have we learned this evening? 
simply that God brings sinners to repentance and converts them. And to do that, he uses the ordinary means of grace, his word and the sacraments. But there's nothing ordinary about them. These God-appointed methods of conversion are his divine work through which he effects great changes in the lives of sinners, saves their never-dying souls, brings them to the place where they appreciate the holiness of God, where they learn about the love of God, where they learn about the need to surrender to the Lordship of Christ, and where the new birth is made effective in their lives through the work, the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. May God bless his word.